coming up on this week's episode of TechSnap. We've got the latest on GitLab's data disaster, a clever new method of cheating at the slots, and a new Netgear exploit that's coming for your network. Plus your feedback, a huge roundup, and so much more on this week's episode of TechSnap. Welcome to this week's episode of TechSnap, Jupiter Broadcasting's weekly systems, network, and administration podcast. This episode was streamed live on February 7th, 2017, and is brought to you by our three very fine sponsors, DigitalOcean, Ting, and IX Systems. Joining me this week is our host, the admin, the organizer, and the explainer, it's Dan. Welcome to the show, Dan. Hello, Wes. Ah, it's How wonderful you to see you. Tonight? Oh, I'm doing, yeah. I'm doing great. You sound much better than you did last week. You've oh, cured sick. that nasty infection. I was so sick. See, now you sound bright, having... chipper, ready to talk about some security news. Yes, yes, I am. Uh, soup and chili helped. Uh, chili situation. is perfect, especially in these like cold, wintry salt. days. Yep, mm. exactly. All right, well, we've got a packed show today, so I think we should just get rolling. What have you got first for us? The first thing is probably a favorite of, of everyone listening. It's um, hacking, mm-hmm. but it's also hacking for money. Not that I'm recommending anyone do we this. We are not advising so this. We're not advising this. But that doesn't make it not super interesting. It seems that Russian engineers have found a brilliant slot machine cheat, and the casinos have no fix, none whatsoever. There's no patching this vulnerability. Ooh. In this case, it was the accountants that noticed something was wrong. and As they are wont to do. I, I know. I was explaining this to my girlfriend, Kathy, and she said, what? They, they had to wait till later to find out that this was a problem? I said, yeah. There's no really, you would think there was some Some kind of, of monitoring. But when they're like, hey, suddenly monitor. we're making less money. But no, it's not until after the fact. But fortunately, they have logs. They have very good logs. So the story starts off um, uh, in early June 2014. Accountants at the Lumiere Place, Place Casino. Now, I want to say that both is French, but I'm sure. Oh, no, St. Louis, French. Noticed that several of their slot machines had, just for a couple of days, gone haywire. The government approved. We'll come back to that bit about government approved software. The power of such machines gives the house a fixed mathematical edge so that casinos can be aware of how much they'll earn over the long haul. Let's say 7.129 cents for every dollar played. But on June 2nd and 3rd, a number of the casino's machines had spit out far more money than they consumed, despite not awarding any major jackpots, an aberration known in industry parlance as a negative hold. Since code isn't prone to sudden fits of madness, the only plausible explanation that someone was cheating. Cheating? In a casino? Does that happen? No, never. Never. Uh, I'm sure everyone listening is familiar with counting cards. And was it the MIT? Yeah, the MIT guys. Yeah, the MIT guys got caught doing that. But they seemed to have a good time with it, and a movie was made. Yeah, I mean, that's... That's good enough. And there are the laws involved can be kind of strange, like you're more so than you would think. Obviously, the whole infrastructure is geared towards these places making considerable amount of money. That doesn't make it right to try to cheat them, uh, but it does make it interesting. Casinos aren't happy if you cheat. No, not at all. 
So, like any good organization, they have logs. So, Casino Security pulled up the surveillance tapes and eventually spotted the culprit, a black-haired man in his 30s who wore a polo zip-up and carried a square brown purse. Unlike most slot cheats, he didn't appear to tinker with any of the machines he targeted, all of which were older models manufactured by Aristocrat Leisure of Australia. I find it interesting that most of this stuff comes from Australia. Uh, I think we'll come back to that again later, too. Instead, he'd simply play, pushing the buttons on a game like Star Drifter or Pelican Pete, while furtively holding his phone close to the screen. Now, right away, that made me start thinking, okay... They're they're watching what's going on in the screen, and then they're they're telling their accomplice when to do it. And it, it can't be live; it's got to be something in the phone. So you play, you hold your phone up like this, and you got tap 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 tap. Okay, ready, go. Right, something in the background that's helping it sync or helping calculate things for it. Yeah, but even more interesting, he'd walk away after a few minutes of holding his phone up. And then he'd return a bit later to give the game a second chance. And that's when he'd get lucky. The man would parlay a 20 to $60 investment into as much as $1,300 before <laughs> cashing out and moving on to another machine. That that's a good pretty nice. Day, eh? Yeah, definitely. Where he'd start the, the cycle anew. Over the course of two days, his winnings tallied to just over 21000 The only odd thing about his behavior during his streaks was the way that he'd hover his finger above the spin button for long stretches before finally jabbing it in haste. Typical slot players don't do that. Right. Yeah, that does seem kind of odd if, you know, they're not just there wasting time, slotting away. It's, it seems very deliberate. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that. By examining rental car records, Missouri authorities identified the, the scammer as a 37-year-old Russian national he had flown back to Moscow on June 6, but the St. Petersburg-based organization he worked for, which employs dozens of operatives to manipulate slot machines around the world, sent him back to the U.S. to join another cheating team. The decision to redeploy him to the U.S. would prove to be a rare misstep for a venture that's quietly making millions, millions of dollars at this, by cracking some of the gaming industry's most treasured algorithms. Now... You'd think that the algorithm wouldn't matter. Even though you know the algorithm, you shouldn't be able to break into it. But we'll see. Russia has been a hotbed of slots-related malfeasance since 2009, when the country outlawed virtually all gambling. Vladimir Putin, who was prime minister at the time, reportedly believed the move would reduce the power of the Georgian organized crime. The ban forced thousands of casinos to sell the slots, excuse me, their slot machines at steep discounts to whatever customers they could find. Some of those with cut-rate slots wound up in the hands of counterfeiters eager to learn how to load new games into old circuit boards. Yes, yeah, so that totally makes sense. Suddenly there's a bunch of cheap machines on the market, perfect to test against, perfect to develop attacks. Wow. Yep, exactly. Um You'd think maybe someone would have wanted them to go somewhere else, but I guess they didn't anticipate this. Others apparently went to the suspect's bosses in St. Petersburg who were keen to probe the machine's source code for vulnerabilities. Does this at all remind you of voting machines? Oh, yeah, totally. That was kind of the first thing I was thinking of. Hmm. By early 2011, casinos throughout Eastern and Central Europe were logging incidents in which slots made by the Austrian company 
Novomatic paid out in probably large sums. Novomatic's engineers could find no evidence that the machines in question had been tampered with, leading them to theorize that the cheaters had figured out how to predict the slot's behaviors. Now, I would have thought the slot's behaviors were unpredictable and, you know, random. Through targeted and prolonged observation of the individual game sequences, as well as possibly recording individual games, it might be possible to allegedly identify a kind of pattern in the game results. There, there's a lot of adjectives in, in that sentence. Allegedly, yes. possibly. I think this is one of those critical reading sections that you're taught in school that like, hmm, maybe, maybe the point they're making here is not as strong. Recognizing those patterns would require remarkable effort. Slot machine outcomes are controlled by programs called pseudo-random number generators. We've heard that a lot before in mm. computers, I think. Yes, we have. That produce baffling results by design. No, they don't. <laughs> they produce exactly government, what they're supposed to produce, or at least they try. Government regulators, such as the Missouri Gaming Commission, vet the integrity of each algorithm before casinos can deploy it. I would I'm be really interested to see those commission hearings. That's, that, I did not realize that. I'm really wondering what experts they have there to vet algorithms such as this. And what are the criteria? Yeah, I would love to learn more. Um, are there any... I really am interested. Is it just gaming people or is it scientists who, mm -hmm. who know a little bit about Statisticians algorithms? or mathematics? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But as the pseudo in the name suggests, the numbers are not truly random. This gets a bit into layman's terms. Most of our readers will understand this already. Because human beings create them using coded instructions, PRNGs can't help but be a bit deterministic. A true random number generator must be rooted in a phenomenon that is not man-made, such as radioactive decay. PRNGs take an initial number known as a seed and then mash it together with various hidden and shifting inputs, for example, the time from a machine's internal clock, in order to produce a result that appears impossible to forecast. I think we've seen enough examples of vulnerabilities to know that a poor random number generator leads to lots of <laughs> Right, that's intrusion. a great place to get started. Yep. But if hackers can identify the various ingredients in that mathematical stew, they can predict they can possibly predict a PRNG's output. That process of reverse engineering becomes much easier, of course, when a hacker has physical access to a slot machine's innards. Now, everyone has access to SSH's innards, mm -hmm. is what I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And they don't tend to break that very often. They go the algorithm side. Yes. Yeah. And prediction. I wonder if... So, um you know, SSH being designed in a way where they, they're aware that people have that access. And so maybe there are some low-hanging fruit here where it's like, well, no one's ever going to get to see this or have models that they can test against. Eh, we'll just ship it this way. It's fine. But It'll be that's okay. Not, no one will ever guess. Yeah, security through obscurity, basically. Come back to that. Knowing the secret algorithm that the slot machine uses to generate pseudo-random results isn't enough to help hackers, though. That's because the... Oh, wait, 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 yes. That's because the inputs for PRNG vary depending on the temporal state of each machine. The seeds are different at different times 
for example, as is the data called from the internal clocks. So even if they understand how a machine's PRNG functions, hackers would also have to analyze the ga machine's gameplay to discern its pattern. That requires both time and substantial computing power, and pounding away on one's laptop in front of a Pelican Pete is a good way to attract the attention of casino security. So, what are they doing? Well, they got lucky. Because on December 10th, the suspect returned. Not longer long after security personnel spotted him inside the Hollywood Casino in St. Louis, four scammers were arrested. Because he and his cohorts had pulled their scam across state lines, federal authorities charged them with conspiracy to commit fraud. The indictments represented the first significant setbacks for the St. Petersburg organization. Never before had any of its operatives faced prosecution. Wow. So... I guess what you're supposed to learn from that is if you're going to do, do a conspiracy, do it only in one state. Yep, I think that's good advice. This is, this is TechSnap where we teach you uh, how to get away with these things. Yeah, how to do it right. We're not advocating any of this. No, that's up to, that's up to you. But if you need the techniques, come to us. Tools, not policy. There you go. The Missouri and Singapore cases appear to, the, appear to be the only instances in which scammers have been prosecuted though a few have been caught and banned by individual casinos. At the same time, the St. Petersburg organization has sent its operatives further and farther afield. In recent months, for example, at least three casinos in Peru have been reported being cheated by Russian gamblers who played aging Novomatic cool fire slot machines. So I guess the key is that the newer ones aren't as spread about and they haven't been hacked into, and they haven't been able to sit there and observe them. So, the economic real. So, I'll go into a bit of detail of what was actually happen ha happening here. Is they were holding up their cell phone in front of the camera. Sorry, holding their cell phone nice. up in in front of. Let me just wipe that. Holding their cell phone up in front of the machine and recording what was going on in the machine. They were then probably using Skype, according to the article, feeding that stream live back to St. Petersburg. That's when they walked away from the machine. Then, after the team back home had managed to analyze the state of the machine, they uploaded data to an app on their phone and then they would go back and hold the phone up in front of the machine, waiting for the right sequence of events to occur. And when those events would occur, the phone would vibrate about a quarter of a second before the ideal situation wow. would arise. And that's when you heard them going tap, 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 tap. That's fascinating. It is pretty cool. I like this app. Yeah, I like this idea. Streaming of, the data away. Yeah, exactly. Right. And it's, it kind of goes to show you how much more you can be enabled now that we have edge devices with this kind of like one minimal processing power to kind of do things if you need to, but then do constant connectivity, constant connection to bigger machines that can do these kinds of big calculations, cross correlations, that kind of stuff. So if you were, if uh, the casinos were a Faraday cage, which I'm sure people wouldn't put up with, uh, maybe they would see less of these kinds of things. Uh, casinos operate on the idea that you're going to be there forever. No yeah, clocks, right. no windows. Uh, you can smoke, you can drink, you can eat. 
just you don't leave. have access to tools. Uh, they got ways around that. Mm-hmm. So that's the gist of, of what I got from the story. So what is interesting is the casinos aren't likely to fix this problem because of economics. The economic realities of the gaming industry seem to guarantee that the St. Petersburg organization will continue to flourish. The machines have no easy technical fix. As Hoke notes, he was mentioned earlier in the article, but I didn't read that part. Aristocrat, Novomatic, and any other machines whose PRNGs have been cracked would not have to pull all the machines out of service and put something else in. And they're not going to do that. Sorry. They would have to pull them all, but they're not going to do that. In Aristocrat's statement to Wired, the company stressed that it has been unable to identify defects in the targeted games and its machines are built to and approved against rigid regulatory technical standards. Does that sound like the voting machines? Yes, it does. I mean, that's kind of the same processes that we follow to make sure that those are backed by rigid specifications and processes. Do we let people inspect voting machines? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, yeah, that's a so. that's a good question. I think I think pretty much uh, I think pretty much the manufacturers of voting machines do not want any attention given to the innards of their machines. No, yeah, it'd be interesting. We so, should look into more of what that process looks like. I remember going to a, a talk. I think it was at uh, oh I can't Shmoocon, hmm. and they had a talk about voting machines. I'm sure they did, and it was very interesting. At the same time, most casinos can afford, cannot afford to invest in the newest slot machines whose PR, PRNGs use encryption to protect mathematical secrets. As long as older compromised machines are still popular with customers, the smart financial move for casinos is to keep using them and accept the occasional loss to scammers. Well, wow. Now... Did you, did you see this? Use encryption to protect mathematical secrets. So they're not actually improving the process. They're just trying to protect the, the seeds and other things better? They're just encrypting it. Well, I so guess that's one way. How would, how would the stuff get unencrypted? Right. I mean, at some point it's either going to be sitting encrypted and then it's got to be unencrypted and in memory somewhere, right? They're going to enter a key when the box boots up. Yeah, or maybe a special dongle or something that the operators have to have. Or Yeah. It's interesting. I'd like to know more about that. So, finally, the onus will be on security personnel to keep an eye peeled for the scam's small tells. A finger that lingers too long above a spin button may be a guard's only clue that hackers in St. Petersburg are about to make another score. Hmm. That's fascinating, Dan. It's quite the nebulous world, this uh, this gambling did, did industry. Did you read how much money they're making? Yeah, I know, right? And it seems Two like it's quite, the, it's quite the sophisticated system. Um, I can also kind of see the academic interest of, you know, it's like a statistical challenge of just, just given this information that you can glean without getting kicked out of a casino... Can we piece it together enough so that you win? Yep. One day, two, two days, 21,000. One guy. 
think I'm that's, sure he's got to share that with the group back right. back behind. But but when you have you know a, a a bunch of other agents out doing the same thing to a bunch of different casinos, that's a profitable organization for sure. There's big money in this. Well, did you have anything else you wanted to highlight about this one? If 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 the slot machine manufacturers really want to make this secure, I think they've got to adopt more of an approach of what happens, say, for SSH or mm-hmm. any other open source project. They, they they've they've got uh, they've got to become more scientific about it, and I really don't know how good they can get with a random number generator in, to, in order to avoid this. I really don't know. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how long this economic situation plays out, if it changes, if it is something that they need to deal with in the future. If, if so, how? Hmm. Obviously, it's just economics, because they're not losing enough to make it worthwhile to upgrade. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and perhaps um, this attack is limited to enough that it'll stay that way long term. I just, think so. Yeah. All right. Good for them. Bad for us. Exactly. And the world turns on. And with that, that brings us to our first sponsor, which is Ting. Go over to techsnap.ting.com. Start using a mobile service provider that is on a mission to make mobile make sense. What is Ting? Ting is mobile. That makes sense. Ting is a no BS mobile service provider. Ting is an MVNO that has both T-Mobile and Sprint. What is that? Yes, they've got CDMA, they've got GSM. Ting was doing it first. Ting is my mobile service provider. It's my family's mobile service provider. It practically runs the Jupiter Broadcasting Network. So let Ting know that you appreciate them supporting TechSnap. Go over to techsnap.ting.com and sign up today. Ting plans start at just $6 a month. Then you pay for what you use, your minutes, your megabytes, and your messages if you, if you use those things. Ting just adds them up and you're billed for what you use. Sure, Uncle Sam takes something right off the top. Yes, Ting can't stop that. But what Ting can stop is things like contracts or early termination fees. At Ting, you don't have that. Plus, if you go to Ting, sign up, go to techsnap.ting.com, you'll get a $25 service credit. Or, hey, maybe you want to buy your phone right from Ting. They come unlocked. Ting does not get in the way of the updates. Just go to their shop. They have, they have phones. Ugh. Some of these phones, they start at such reasonable rates. Let's just check this out right here. Oh yeah, SIM cards, $9. LG Tribute 5, $55. So you can go over to Ting, you get $25, boom. Now you've paid, what, $30? You've got a smartphone, you've got a data plan. It's everything you need. Don't waste time. There's no add-on charges you can tether. You've got caller ID. You've got voicemail. And it all starts at a low $6 per month. Go over to techsnap.ting.com and let them know that you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. Thank you, Ting. All righty. What do we got next? I wanted to mention the, I think the previous, no, sorry. I'm getting, I I reordered these talks after I put in uh, this talk came from. Uh, This, this suggestion about GitLab came from Sean. Sean made another, uh, a few other suggestions Thank you, Sean. That are also appearing in today's show. So thank you, Sean. We really appreciate that. This article is about GitLab, GitLab.com. And there, there'll be a lot of things said in this post that I'm reading that other people wrote. And I want to emphasize that 
all of us have gone through crap times when the when the system is basically um, gone belly up and you're doing everything you can to get it fixed. Yep. And it's very easy in hindsight and from the sidelines to say, you really should have done this. Right. But once we get through to the end of this, we'll go over a number of things that people have suggested. And I'll go over a number of things that I do here, which I hope will prevent something like this happening to the systems that I run at home. Right. So rather than sitting here and standing in judgment or anything like that, it's really just a good learning opportunity and a thing to check your own setups. Kind of, we can, we'll talk about what went wrong, some things that you can try to avoid, procedures you can put in place. Um, and these things happen. They do. Now, so the title of the article is GitLab.com melts down after wrong directory deleted. Backups fail. So source code hub GitLab.com is in meltdown after experiencing data loss as a result of what suddenly what it has suddenly discovered are ineffectual backups. Now, from what I know, everything is back to normal and some data was lost, but this is all written from a few days ago. On Tuesday evening, Pacific time, the startup issued a sobering series of tweets we've listed below. Behind the scenes, a tired sysadmin working late at night in the Netherlands had accidentally deleted a directory on the wrong server during a frustrating database replication process. He wiped out a folder containing 300 gigabytes of live Ooh. data that was due to be replicated. So, unfortunately, it all went away. Now, the way they've described it here isn't quite as good as the list that GitLab.com have actually presented. Um, the GitLab have actually done a, an incident report, and they've described it in a little bit better detail. They're talking about how... Um, they started noticing that spammers were hammering, hammering the database by creating snippets and making it unstable. And they started troubleshooting that to figure out what it was. But then it escalated, which caused a lockup on rights to the database, which caused more downtime. Uh, they've got a couple of graphs there, if you just scroll down a bit. Uh, I'm down now to the second incident. A uh, little bit further, there it is. So. What happened in the second incident is they noticed that database replication was way far behind. Um, and this happened because there's a spike in the writes that were not processed on time by the secondary database. And by this time, they were, they were lagged by about four gigabytes. Um, later on in the show notes, you'll see a link to second quadrant where it's pointed out that four gigabytes of, of uh, lag doesn't seem to be a big issue. But then there were all these other problems that arose. Um, this kind of stuff is really rather boring if you're not using Postgres. But if you read this second quadrant article, it goes into details of what uh, uh, they think actually went wrong. Okay, now let's jump back to the other, the, the, the um, register article. Now, so. What happened is this guy was trying to get replication going again, and it wouldn't start. And so he thought it wouldn't start because there was a data directory there, a Postgres data directory. So he says, oh, well, I'll just get rid of that. Unfortunately, he was on the primary server, not the replication server. Not on server. the replicant. Oh, boy. He was trying to get replication going, and that's when everything went down. 
Now, in one of the show note articles, it says, basically, when you're trying to fix a production problem, don't do it alone. Do it with somebody else. Say, hey, Wes, I'm just about to do this on this server. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. And you verify it and you make sure, yes, I'm on this server. This is what I'm doing. The other person hears you, confirms, and goes forward with it. And I mean, um, in my experience, that's even doubly so true when you're working with things like databases or other sources of truth for your organization. And there's the added level of stress of shit. The whole company's down. Right. The We've clock is ticking. We have to get this as fast as we can. Yeah, there's that's, so that's much pressure. Um, pilots do a similar thing. Uh, I've seen training videos of where one pilot will reach over and adjust uh, a dial and will see what he's doing. The other pilot will watch and confirm mm -hmm. and make sure that the change was made as indicated verbally. Um, it's it's a really good procedure, and I, I think that would go a long way in situations like this. Yeah. So there is a huge Google Doc. Uh, it's linked in the show notes that you can look at. Um, fortunately, this incident affected the database, such as issues and merge requests, but it did not affect the Git repos. So no code, no live code was affected. Only uh, you could you you could say that merge requests are live code, but. It wasn't. It wasn't Git repos. It wasn't the wikis. So that's good for some people. But the document concludes with the following. So in other words, out of five backup replication techniques deployed, none are working reliably or were set up in the first place. LVM snapshots are by default only taken every 24 hours. YP, that was one of the the people working on it happened to run one manually about six hours prior to the outage. They I were see. doing some other task, and they're saying, "Okay, before I do this, I'll do a, I'll do a backup." It might have been a snapshot, but always, when you can, do a backup. You rarely regret doing yeah. a backup. Yep, hardly it's ever. Worth the space. If it turns out you didn't you need it later, uh, come back and delete it. Okay, fine. And in my, this is another one where it's like if you're if you're making it a manual process or you have something in the readme file that says like oh yeah before you start make a backup, that does, that does not always happen. That's right there signifying that you should get this on some some sort of schedule where you can and monitor it so that you know it's actually happening. I remember one place I worked at when we were going to do a production change, we would run it on staging first or on tests. I can't remember what they called it. But you would have a list of items that you're going to do. You would do each one as it was documented. It listed the expected results. Oh, nice. That's really nice. And then you would finish. And you would run through that in test to make sure it worked. And if it worked, it was a very good likelihood that it worked in production when you go to do it during the maintenance window. And I really like that. Yeah. Here's what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Here are the expected results. It gives and you a workflow, to like a checklist that you can really go through and be like, okay, is anything wrong? Am I allowed to continue to the next step? Yep. Yeah. Now, where were we? Regular backups seem to be also only taken once per 24 hours, although YP has not been able to figure out where they are stored. According to JN, these don't appear to be working, producing files only a few bytes in size. 
Whoa. So they were doing backups, but they don't appear to have been working. We'll get back to that. Another worker, SH, says it looks like PG Dump, which is the Postgres backup tool, may be failing because PostgreSQL 9.2 binaries are being run instead of the 9.6 binaries. This happens because Omnibus, which is another product, only uses Postgres 9.6 if data slash PG version is set to 9.6. But on workers, this file does not exist. As a result, it defaults to 9.2, which silently fails. Therefore, there's no SQL dumps being made as a result. And FogGem, which sounds like a log rotation tool, may, may have cleaned out the older backups. Now, I went and checked one of my database servers. This database server happens to be called dbclone. We'll come back to why I call it dbclone later. So Postgres 9.6 is installed on this server. On FreeBSD, that gets installed to user local pgsql. Inside there, there is a directory. Sorry, that's the old database. For 9.6, it goes into vardb postgres. In there, there is a directory called data96. Inside there, there is a file called pgversion. Mm -hmm. The contents of that file contains 9.6. So that's the file that was missing from the worker, from the worker databases. And that's why they were, weren't running the 9.6 binary. Uh, remind me after the next point to explain Postgres dump restore restrictions okay. because that they, they are interesting and there's a number of ways around it. All right, so the next backup me method, disk snapshots in Azure are enabled for the NFS server, but not for the database servers. So that meant that instead of having a file system level snapshot, such as ZFS snapshot, they had it for the NFS servers, but not for the database servers, and that's where the data was deleted from. <sighs> See, if you'd taken a ZFS snapshot, for example, it would be read-only. And even if you deleted all those 300 gig, it's still there on disk because this is a copy-on-write file system. And you could have been back by either promoting the snapshot or, worst case, doing a copy from inside the .zfs snapshots directory into your current your production data. Right. So it would have been there. Uh, Mark Felder and I yesterday were talking about a snapshot tool uh, for ZFS, which is based on Ruby. And he was hesitant to install Ruby on all his ZFS servers. So am I, actually. I'm hesitant to install Ruby. But he tells me that this ZFS snapshot tool um, has a bunch of defaults. And then you override those defaults with ZFS attributes. So, so you've got a file set, and you say something like, ZFS set backup interval. Mm -hmm. Oh, and then uh, it'll just read it right out from there. Right. That seems very, very clean way to do it. So you can say, okay, snapshot all the databases, all, all the file systems every half hour, but on this one, don't snapshot it because it's not valid to be snapshot. Or instead, snapshot this one every two hours. You can put all the parameters wow. as ZFS attributes, which I think is a brilliant way of oh, doing it. Oh yeah, that. it makes de deployment and system, you know, if it's all there, you can just install it, set it to run, and you should be good. 
we'll, we'll do PG dump later. Now, the next point. The synchronization process removes webhooks once it has synchronized data to staging. Unless we can pull those from a regular backup from the past 24 hours, they will be lost. So I'm not really mm. sure what they're saying, but it sounds like they have a synchronization thing, but they have to be used within 24 hours. I'm really not sure what they talk about there. Hmm. Yeah, that's a little confusing. Let's see. Hmm. Yes. All right. So next point. This is interesting that that they say this themselves. Um, The replication procedure is super fragile, prone to error, relies on a handful of random shell scripts, and is badly documented. That's really bad. Boy, that's hard to read almost. You don't want something that's prone to error, and you don't want anything that's fragile. You you want something that that fails reliability, fails gracefully, not fails reliable, <laughs> yes. or at least has understand understood failure modes, documented, worked through. Yeah, boy, and they, so, not even fragile, super fragile. Next point: our backups to S three apparently don't work either. The bucket is empty. <laughs> That's so sad. Now, I back up in a number of ways. Uh, full disclosure, I, I've contributed to the Bacula project. Um, I use Bacula at home. I use it to back up a whole lot of stuff. Uh, this past weekend was the first Sunday and I wound up with about one terabyte of backups nice. on the on these drives, just from the full backup. Is that on the and tape get, or? Well, it's on it's on disk in this server. Yep, that server there. And then I get copied over to tape in that one. No, this one. That one's that one's the SGL tape drive, and it's copied in there onto about seven or eight tapes. And later this week, those tapes will be moved to a secure, undisclosed Ooh. location. Sorry, viewers, we can't share that location with you. No. Don't ask. No. It's rude. Now, I also talked earlier about something called dbclone. dbclone is on this server down here. Can you see that? No, it's Not just out of camera just shot. Just out. You're teasing us here, Dan. You're teasing us. That server there. Okay. That server there has a jail in it called db clone. Okay, back to regular. Uh, there we go. So, on db clone, what it does is it reaches out to all my servers which have a database, backs up that database, dumps it, does a pg dump or a MySQL dump, and then rsyncs an un, uh, an uncompressed copy of that database back to db clone. From there, Bacula will back up those copies uh, to disk and then later to tape sometimes. Now, the reason I back up an uncompressed copy is uncompressed copies are easier for rsync to find 
diffs. Oh, that makes sense. Deltas. So you'll and end up sinking less. On, so you wind up actually transferring less data, and then you compress it on the fly over the wire, so you're actually sending less data. And you end up with but, backing up this the smaller data, but you get the benefits. Oh, wow, that's clever. Right. Um, we tested that with TarSnap. Colin Percival and I said, okay, is it better to back up uh, a compressed version of your database or an uncompressed version? And it turns out that it's better to, to use TarSnap on uncompressed versions because they only store the deltas as well. Right. So on dbclon, every day there's a script, uh, might be two scripts, that runs. And what it does is it takes those backups that I grabbed earlier in the day and loads them into a database server and then sends me any error messages that resulted that's from great. the loading of those databases. Now, hopefully, that's working as planned. Um, I think I also store the logs from each one of those runs. And I know that if one of the rsyncs from the other server fails, I get an email. Uh, and that's just because something pops up in the cron job that doesn't go to dev null because it's an error and it winds up getting emailed to me. Um, I also have a Nagios script which looks on the file system of dbclone to see how old the most recent backup is for a list of backups. And I have two copies of those backups. Um, I have the one that should have been downloaded today, okay. and yeah. then it gets. I use log rotate mm -hmm. to rotate it away, but it leaves an original copy. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So what I do is I copy from the backup directory into an archive directory, and then the archive directory gets gets log rotate. So I have several copies of the backups on disk, and log rotate takes care of that. Um, and we talked about the backup, and we talked about the cron jobs. Did, did you want to talk about the limitations of PG dump and restore? Yes. Um, say you're upgrading your Postgres database, and you're going, say, from 9.4 to 9.5. The correct procedure is to use the 9.5 client to do the dump, because it's going to be the 9.5 client, 9 client which does the restore. And the 9.4 client is not aware of all of these nuances and may produce a dump which cannot be loaded into the newer database server. So you need it to be made with a... Yeah, exactly. So it speaks the same language. It has the same expectations that it, the version exactly. that you're restoring to. That seems like a good rule. One of the problems with it, with this is that some software, some packaging systems don't allow different clients clients of different versions to be concurrently installed. So suddenly you've just paved all of your 9.5s, you only have 9.6s. Right. Yep. So, there's a couple of ways around that. Now I made a note because I knew I would want to refer to this note, and here it is. You and your forethought, Dan. So, a couple of solutions I've had to this, and I've done this most re this one I'm about to mention on a couple of my servers. So, I've got a server with no jails on it, so I create a jail and install nine point install the newer client in there and then dump into there and then just copy the data over and then do a restore. Okay. Or sorry, a PG a PG restore. Um, that works well. Uh, that's the same as doing a dump from another host which has a newer value on mm -hmm. it. Um, 
one thing that I have done before and I completely forgotten about, but Mark Felder reminded me, you say for FreeBSD, what you do is you build the client from source and never install it. You just build just it. Just leave it there. And then change into the source directory and run it directly from there. Right, or I modify your path a, or whatever works for your case. Yep. Uh, I think they're standalone binaries. Oh, nice. Okay. So all That's you easy. have to do is supply the full path. and Away it goes. Yeah, and, and when I said change into, I, I do that so then I can just do dot slash. Right, you don't have to type that. the whole path out. Yeah. yeah, No, that's a good suggestion. So those are some caveats with uh, Postgres. Now, okay, back to the GitHub article. So this is this is this was in the uh, in the post. Making matters worse is the fact that. GitHub last year decreed that it had outgrown the cloud and would build and operate its own Ceph clusters. GitLab's infrastructure lead, Pablo Carranza, said that the decision to roll his own infrastructure will make GitHub more efficient, consistent, and reliable as we'll have more ownership of the entire infrastructure. This sounds like I'm not sure why they would want to do that because sometimes not running the hardware is a good thing. You can just concentrate on what you know best and let other people concentrate on the hardware side. Right. You don't have to build out a whole part of your organization just to do that, especially if it's not really the value no. of what you're selling. Some some circumstances dictate that you run your own hardware, especially, say, uh, in my instance, we're a security group, so we certainly wouldn't be outsourcing anything to right. anyone. But things that's like that, a, or that's like, a very, different, very different situation. Or you might need like a very particular peering, or you have latency pro issues, or you know, there, there's probably a reason for you to be running your own custom stack or that kind of thing. But if you if you can, yeah, it's nice to outsource hardware to other people who are responsible for it. Let them do what they do best. I know I saw the uh, Hacker News discussion about when they when they made that announcement, uh, and there's a lot of people there cautioning them, having gone through similar things, or just saying, you know, you really need, you're really going to need, if you're doing this, you really need people on your staff who've done this before, who've built up yeah. data centers, who know what they're doing. So the the next talking point in the show notes is just see this, see GitLab's uh, database incident report. It makes for very interesting reading. Now. My thanks to Rikai. Rikai, thank you for the next bit because he brought it to our attention. And it's an example, in addition to what we already talked about, it's an example of why making sure your backup solution is solid as hell and why that is important. In this case, it's catastrophic failure with myth weavers. Um, now, for context, MythWeavers is a website that handles things like the creation and management and sharing of Dungeons and Dragons and other tabletop RPG. Oh, neat! Yeah. So basically, you create your character sheets online, and unfortunately, they lost about six months of data. Oh, that's a shame. Now, this guy is completely honest and takes total ownership of all the mistakes he made, and hopefully, others can learn from his mistakes. Some of the things that he's, you know, some of the things that he goes into is very interesting. And I really feel sorry for the guy. He he admits that he's not a sysadmin. He's not an expert in this area. He's just doing this. It's a labor of love, as far as I can tell. And unfortunately, he admits that that he he needs help, and hopefully, he will get it. No, I'm not saying anything bad about the guy. It's just unfortunate. 
So uh, the trick is getting it done, getting the backups done, and having it notify you when something isn't right, as well as making it consistent, reproducible, and redundant if possible. This is also an example of why, if you have data you care about, that step should not be skipped. Automated backups are a lot of upfront work that people often avoid doing, at least initially, and you regret it later. This is a well-documented postmortem of what happens when you do that and why you should set aside the time and get it done. Now, in this case, no one would, no one outside those particular users would claim it was critical data. Right. But it's it's caused a lot of heartache and, and pain, and for this guy, definitely stress. And even just having a backup that may be a week old or so, that's better than something that's oh, six yeah. months old. The difference between like, yeah, sure, you missed the latest stuff you had versus everything's mm-hmm. gone. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I think now, that's a good point that like it may not be, you know, it's not enterprise Git server level of important, but everyone in their own life has these kinds of data sets where it's like, there's a lot of sentimental value attached, so you really don't want to lose it, even if it doesn't seem like it's, you know, it's not the keys to your bank account, but it is important. Imagine if all the World of Warcraft servers died and everything was lost and everyone went back six months in their characters. Yeah, right, exactly. There'd be a huge... Oh, sorry, we would be hearing about it. It would make the news. So, and finally, there's three more... Uh, back in the show notes, there's three more things that um, I've listed in in here. Uh, basically, uh, a, a tweet that says the GitHub outage and database deletion and lack of backups is a great reminder to routinely test your database, sorry, your disaster recovery strategies. Uh, then there's that link to the second quadrant blog post that I talked about. Then there's a, another chap who talks about the uh, GitHub data incident. And in there, he talks about blameless postmortems and a just culture. I think that's a good idea. Basically, go through the postmortem, don't do any blames, just figure out what happened and how to fix it next time. Um, reminds me of a TV show where they used to have that. Uh, it, was a, it, was a, it was a hospital show. And every week they used to have, uh, I forget what they called it, but it was basically everyone sitting, sitting in a lecture hall, going over the problems and being very blunt and brutal I see. Yep. about what went wrong and, and why it went wrong. It wasn't exactly blameless, though. Right. But I, I completely agree with that. I think that's an important part of, a, of uh, being a mature organization, a mature operations group or whatever you are, is having the blamelessness and then using that to go develop your disaster recovery runbook or whatever you know you have so that people understand whose responsibilities are whose, how does things degrade, what is the procedures for making changes in production, that kind of thing. The, the main thing is to improve the process. Right, exactly. worry about Worry about blame and repercussions some other time. But trust me, the people that made the mistakes feel bad enough as yes. it is. Yes, exactly. So... There's no need to make it any worse for them. They're, they're already punishing themselves more than you could. Leave the blame for later. Yeah, exactly. Plenty of time. Uh, I'm, I am certainly glad to not be in GitLab's position. That sucks. I, I really I really like the, the GitLab project. I think they're doing pretty neat things. I have a couple of repos hosted over them mm-hmm. over there with them. So here's hoping things I, I re- get better. I really like the way that I can clone a repo, uh, fix a typo, and push 
yes. without ever having to download it to my box. It's, it's just all on GitLab, GitHub. I really like that. Mm-hmm. That's very convenient. All right. Anything else that you want to highlight from this round? Looking around at my notes. Nope. In the feedback for next week, let us know if you've checked your backups. Yeah, exactly. That is a TechSnap challenge. Go check your backups. Go do some real restores. Make sure that data's there. Let us know what you find. All right. Well, if you're a little worried about your infrastructure, maybe you're not a hardware expert, you should talk to our next sponsor, which is iX Systems. iX Systems is the hardware provider you wish you had discovered years ago. They have... Servers powered by incredible Intel processors. They've got a sales team staffed with real engineers who know what you need. They've built servers from just your average run-of-the-mill, if you can call them that, FreeNAS minis, you know, a couple terabytes here and there, to petabyte-scale systems. I mean, just look at the list of their sponsors. They've worked with people like LinkedIn, Groupon, Splunk, Tumblr, Hitachi, NASA. (sighs) Maybe if you've got some real data needs, go check out their TrueRack. This is a favorite of mine. If you're in a position like GitLab, you're trying to build your own new data center. Maybe you're not, you know, you haven't worked with SAS expanders. You haven't worked with giant SAN arrays. You really want something that has first-class snapshot support with ZFS, the enterprise file system. iX Systems is the first place you should check. So help us out. Let them know that you appreciate them sponsoring the TechSnap program. Go over to iXSystems.com slash TechSnap. If you do that, they will give you the ultimate guide to hardware, buying hardware for open source. So iX Systems, one of the things that makes them different than your average big blue box store that sells hardware, sells it by the catalog. Maybe you want to go online, you want to just click a few things, have a new server show up. Yeah, you can do that. But do you really know what you need to buy? With iX Systems, they've they've been, been there before. They've made bigger systems, they've made faster systems, and they're ready to work with you to make sure you get exactly the system you need. They know that you deserve a new custom server. So go on over to ixsystems.com slash techsnap and get something new and tweet at them and tweet at us and let us know what brand new system you just got. Ah, I love the guys over at iX. So I do, I do too. Next, we'll be talking about a, a provider that I have a little less faith in after this. We missed... One of the three talks. Oh, did we? We missed the middle talk on Netgear. Oh, well, let's do that right now. I skipped right over it. That'll happen. That'll happen. We're just, like, there's so much in the show. It's just, it's, it'll just happen. Okay. Let, let's go to the Netgear. This won't take long. Yeah. All right. So. So. There's been a Netgear. Ex- uh, excuse me. There has been a Netgear exploit found in 31 models, which lets hackers turn your router into a botnet. This came to our attention from Sean. Thank you, Sean. For, mo- for, for most people, routers are just little boxes which sit between you and your ISP. They do NAT, maybe firewall, and generally stop the outside world from getting in without your permission. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. The issue longstanding is updates. We've talked about this many times on tech snack. Tech snap, excuse me. Tech, tech snack is almost as good. So yeah. Tech snap. Bring me some food. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what they're supposed to do. The issue, long-standing, as I said, is updates. When vulnerabilities are found, the code needs to be patched. With these devices, that tr- that issue can be troublesome. Given that everyday consumers cannot be expected to update them, 
for us geeks, this isn't much of an issue if the updates are made available to us. Right, that's a big if sometimes. We patch our own systems already. We can do that. It's not that hard to patch a firmware on a device. We can do that. But your everyday consumers, they can't. We can't expect them to do that. Uh, the vast majority of router users are unaware that they even require an update. They sit there and waiting, and sometimes they can be found. And when they are found to have a vulnerability, they can become part of a botnet, a huge <coughs> collection of devices ready to do the bidding of those with ill intent. Those botnets can be used for a variety of malicious purposes. But why do this? Well, most often it's money. So this story is about someone uh, discovering a problem with their router and then exploring it. Basically, uh, the guy was sitting at home and his Netgear router lost the connection to the internet. And he was all wrapped up in bed and he didn't want to go and fix it. So he said, let me do this through the web panel. So he couldn't remember the password and it was too late at night to check whether his roommates had it. So he tried one of two things. He could either get up go downstairs and reboot the router while he froze. Yeah, I'm not doing that. Stay, yeah, or he could stay in bed. And since I am a security researcher, <laughs> try to hack it. So he chose the latter. Well, he started with the web interface, and he started manually fuzzing the web server with different parameters. And eventually he got a response which was interesting, which fed back something from onauth.cgi. So he wondered what that meant. And then... Luckily, the internet had started to come back on its own. Now, I want to know why it came back on its own. Had he been doing something and it started working, or was the problem actually with with right. the, the router? Was it just had it already been upstream? compromised by a third party? Yeah, exactly. A third party had compromised it, patched it, fixed it, brought the connection back up. Done. So, then he started looking at Unauth and, and found two publicly disclosed exploits from 2014. So he went and, and tried that, and he tried that, and it worked. He had his password, and now he can go to sleep happy and satisfied. So the next day, he woke up. Three routers with the same issue? Coincidence. I'm not sure. So he had an older Netgear, and he tried that. It was exploited. He started asking people if that had Netgear if, they could, if he could try the same thing on his. Turned out, yes, it did. And he wrote a little script. And the script actually didn't work as well as he wanted to. But then he looked there and he said that the very first time he ran his script, it returned the credentials no matter what, password, what parameters you sent it. So this is like going in and knocking on a door and the, the lock unlocks and the door opens. Wow. Regardless of how you knock. So this was a totally new bug. And he, he went in and created two new, uh, the vulnerabilities have been assigned to CVE and a TWSL. The numbers are there in the article. So next he went through the responsible disclosure process. Basically, he sent findings to Netgear at the beginning of April 2016. In the initial contact, the first advisory had 18 models listed as vulnerable, although six of them didn't have the vulnerability in their latest firmware. Perhaps it was fixed as part of a different patch cycle. The second advisory included 25 models, all of which were vulnerable in their latest firmware version. Ah. So that was in April. 
in June, Netgear published a notice and, and provided a fix for a small subset of those vulnerabilities, vulnerable routers, and a workaround for the rest. They also made the commitment to be working toward 100% coverage for all affected routers. That notice has since been upgraded several times and currently contains 31 vulnerable models, 18 of which are patched and two which are listed as previously vulnerable, but not now. So over the past months, they've contacted Netgear multiple times for clarification and allow them to patch. So over that time, more models were, were found that were not listed in the initial notice. They kept adding it, and they were getting worried. So luckily, Netgear did get back to us right before we were set to d disclose these uh, publicly. We are a bit skeptical, skeptical since our experience to date matched that of other third-party researchers who have tried to responsibly disclose to Netgear only to met, be met with frustration. Two changes helped sway our opinion. The first was that Netgear committed to pushing out firmware to the currently unpatched models on an aggressive timeline. The second change made us more confident that this Netgear was not just serious about patching these vulnerabilities, but serious about changing how they handle third-party disclosure in general. That change was their commitment to BugCrowd, a third-party vendor that helps to vet research and provide helps to vet research and provides oversight for the patching process. They also do bug bounties to motivate third-party researchers. We fully expect this move will not only smooth the relationship between third-party researchers and Netgear, but in the end will result in a more secure line of products and services. I hope so. That's pretty good. Yeah, that it's is pretty good. good. Netgear, like, Netgear is so popular amongst consumers. It's oh, yeah. Just I everywhere. feel like I see their little switches all the time. I know I've used a couple routers Remember, some of the routers had like um, a backdoor where you could send a magic packet to them, and then suddenly a telnet interface would appear. I definitely used that in routers I did not control in the past. What wasn't that for uh, testing or internal monitoring or something? Yes, I, at least yeah. supposedly. Yeah, I had not heard of Bug Crowd before, so that's interesting. But it's nice that there's um, people they can re reach out to to kind of help. They can they can get the fixes applied, and there's people that can help kind of triage and organize all the results around that. Yes, yes, I see no downsides, none at all. Yeah. Why is this vulnerability so critical? For starters, it affects a huge number of models. They found more than 10,000 vulnerable devices that are remotely accessible. The real number of affected devices is probably in the hundreds of, sorry, hundreds of thousands, if not over a million. Basically, the vulnerability can be used by a remote hacker if the remote administration is set to be internet-facing. It's not on by default, However, anyone with physical access to the network with a vulnerable router can exploit it locally. So this would include, say, any public Wi-Fi spaces like cafes yep. or libraries. Um, so it doesn't include people at home unless you've set it, set the admin to be public. Yeah, and not mo most people wouldn't be doing that. No, if you're if you're if you're smart enough or technical enough to do that, then you should probably figure out a, a different way into your network, set up a VPN yes. or something else that yes. can be more secure. Yes. Um, so and he goes on to say that, you know, people reuse their password, and if the admin password is known, it probably gives you uh, a foothold into other things in the network. But really, chances of 
the password being used somewhere else within their network. I don't think it's very likely. Maybe on their laptop or something. But So he goes on to say, with malware such as the Mirai botnet out there, it is also possible that some of the vulnerable routers could be infected and ultimately used as bots as well. If running a bot is not possible, the DNS can be easily changed to a rogue unit yep. such as used by Proofpoint to further infect machines on the network. So he, he concludes with, and we conclude with, we recommend that all users of Netgear equipment check the Knowledge Base article for instructions to test if you are vulnerable and how to apply patched firmware if you are. If you have some, go go do that right now. There's no reason to wait. Patch your shit. Patch do your it shit. now. Don't wait. That's great. Anything else you'd like to add? Any takeaways on that one? If you have friends or family using a Netgear router, get it fixed. Yeah, Thank that's you. a good point. I mean, I know I play IT guys sometimes, but I don't, I don't always think proactively that way. Uh, especially about like tiers, but it might be a good thing to just ask around, ask around the community, yes. see what people know. Yes, exactly. When you're visiting friends, say, "Hey, what router do you have?" <laughs> yeah, exactly. Maybe you can help stop stop botnets. I like that. We'll have to get that campaign going. All right. Well, with that, that brings us to our final sponsor of the day, which is DigitalOcean. Oh, that's the IR serum. Also running on DigitalOcean. What is DigitalOcean? DigitalOcean is a simple cloud hosting provider dedicated to offering the most intuitive and easiest way to spin up a cloud server just for you. In fact, you can spin it up in under 55 seconds. So, you know, if you're if you're worried about how do I set up my new firewall or switch device, don't. Instead, head over to DigitalOcean. Use promo code SNAPOcean. That tells them that you like that they support the TechSnap program. We're certainly grateful for it. Then, that yet gets you a $10 credit. So, DigitalOcean has droplets starting at as little as $5 a month. Yeah, that's right. $5 a month. Just go over to DigitalOcean.com. Use promo code SNAPOcean. Head over to their pricing page. Click Get Started. And you will just see how easy it is, right? So, right here, they've got monthly pricing. But you flip this tab, you've got hourly pricing, something I love to do. I've got a big compile, trying to build some software. Maybe I need to do something like what we were just talking about, where you need a different Postgres version. Spin up a nice, you know, oh, maybe this one over here. Ooh, what's that? It's only 12 cents an hour, and you get 8 gigs of memory. A speedy 4-core processor, 80 gigs of SSD disk. Yeah, that's right, DigitalOcean is all SSD. Plus, if you need to, they've got expandable block storage. They've got a new monitoring beta that you might be able to get into, and they're working on load balancing. So you don't need to get yourself some sort of hardware, vulnerable, proprietary solution. You can use DigitalOcean, have a full personal cloud running. Try it out. They've got data center locations in New York, San Francisco, Singapore, Amsterdam, London, Toronto, Frankfurt, and probably more coming soon. They have a simple intuitive control panel, which power users can replicate, plus they've got a UI or They've got a ton of simple apps. They've got them on Android. They've got them on iOS. They've got them for the desktop. They've got command line apps. And if that's not enough, go check out their community page. They've got a ton of docs. They have professional editors taking contributions from the community. So if you fancy yourself a writer, go on over, try to try to contribute something, find a problem, submit a solution. Head on over to digitalocean.com today and use promo code SNAPOcean. And now we've got some great feedback to go through. 
First up, we've got something from Alex, and he's writing to us about Mesos and software that is impossible to back up. Dear TechSnap team, ooh, I like that. We'll have to use that in the future. TechSnap team. I'm watching the show since episode 70, and I still enjoy it every week. I would like to hear your opinion on software that is impossible, or maybe impossible, to back up due to its nature. To make this more tangible, I'm talking about Apache Kafka. Do you have any best practices or other considerations, such as buying a second cluster? Uh, oh, actually, here he says, buying a second cluster is not an option at this point. Probably realized maybe we would suggest that. Um, also, do you have any experience running Apache Mesos, the operating system for the data center, as they call it? I'm very interested in it because I would like to make greater use of existing resources without the need of fixed partitioning, like when using virtualization or bare metal machines. Unfortunately, I'm quite new to this software and therefore I'm a bit scared of rolling it out. Our company is currently in contact with IX for some new gear, and of course, we've mentioned TechSnap. Hey, thank you for doing that. We appreciate it. Keep up the great work. Alex from Austria. Well, thank you very much for writing us, Alex. You have any thoughts there, Dan? I don't like software you can't back up. Yeah, right. That makes me nervous right away. I don't know much about Apache Ka Kafka, uh, but I have played with Apache... Ooh, I can't remember the name of that product. Bookkeeper, Apache Bookkeeper. And yeah, it, if you can't get to the data, you can't back it up. And really, your only solution there is multiple redundant copies that are all tied together and feeding the information back and forth. And I'm sorry that I did not have time to research this particular piece of software to find out how to do it, but it's one of the things that, that, that I think a good software project provides is a way to back up your data or a way just to dump your data. E even Google is going so far as to say, here's your data, take it away, you can have it. Um, so if, if Google can do that with the vast amount of data it has on you, why can't Mesos do that? Why can't they dump it out? Um, it's an operating system for the data center, but how do you back it up? Yeah. And and so maybe one thing when, um, yeah, I do see some things for Kafka, like having having replications, other things, or some kind of producer that can do that. Um, but it is kind of, I think it's good that you're a little nervous about these things, because when you're looking for new software that you want to roll out in your production zone, you should have, be able to, right, if you are going to have backups, then you should be drawing up these, these run books of here's how the backups work, here's how the scale goes. And if it's not, if you don't have resources provided upstream for you to know how to implement those things correctly, then either you're going to need to become, you know, a subject matter expert in this running the software and admining the software, or yes. hire someone who can. So, Apache Kafka is a stream processing platform. The project aims to provide a unified, high throughput, low latency platform for real-time data feeds. Its storage layer is essentially a massively scalable pub/sub message queue, architected as a distributed transaction log, making it highly valuable for enterprise infrastructures to processing to process streaming data. Do we know anyone that does a lot of streaming? Might have some expertise in this area? Oh, I think we do. Hmm. Hmm. Maybe we can so consult. I really don't I don't know enough about this area in in, in order to advise you but possibly one of our listeners does. So if they let us know, yeah, we'll let do. you know. And if not, maybe we have a little bit of homework, uh, something we can just uh, 
just look at and see if we have any thoughts for next time. Yeah. And I'm sorry we couldn't help you more. All right. But thank you anyway, Alex. It's great to hear from you. So moving on to our next bit of feedback. This is from Connor, and he's asking us about Windows backup to a FreeNAS. Hi, Wes, and Dan the backup man. Oh, I like that too. I'm currently using Delta Copy slash rsync to back up a couple folders from my Windows 10 PC to my FreeNAS. I'd like a more efficient way of doing this, as well as the ability to back up the entire OS and programs. I'm on a mega poopy DSL connection, so re-downloading most things is a no-go. Would the Bacula plugin for FreeNAS be capable of this, or might another program be better? Enjoying the new hosts. Keep up the good work, Connor. Fortunately, he's using two of our favorite tools. Yes, he is. FreeNAS, and he mentioned Bacula. Yeah, he looks like he's ready to jump on the Bacula ship, so that's good. Use them. <laughs> um, Bacula does have a Windows client. You can get the binary if you pay for it. I think it's only about 10 bucks. Oh, that seems totally I'm not, worth I'm not it. sure about that. But you can get it. So I would install that on your Windows 10 PC. Make sure that the binary that you have for the Windows PC is not newer than the binary you have on your FreeNAS box. In short, what's on your FreeNAS box should be newer or the same version as what you install on your Windows PC. That, that's a general rule with Bacula um, uh, program modules. The client cannot be newer than the server. And then I think it should just work. Um, depending on what you want to back up, um, I don't know how good the bare metal restore is for Windows, but if you jump on the Bacula user's mailing list or read the documentation, there may be some good information there. Um, but it sounds like what you want to download what you want to back up is just stuff that you've downloaded, not necessarily the whole OS. So you might want to take the approach of backing up your data and relying upon restoring from uh, install media if you don't want to go the bare metal restore way, which I've seen some people do, which involves a, um, a bare metal restore CD. I've never used it. I've always taken the install the OS, then restore the data approach. Oh, right. But right. You, you, you do have choices there. And start, start with a free NAS, find out what version it is, then see if you can get a, a Windows client of the same version or, or older and install that. And you may be able to do like a hybrid. I understand like, you know, if you do have a, a slow problem. I, I agree with you, Dan. I would probably do that where I've installed the OS and then at least, you know, on our platforms of choice. It's pretty easy to have um, scripts or other things that can kind of bootstrap all your application level stuff. And then if you have your data backups mounted onto that system or whatever, then it's all, it all plays yep. nice. So there's things like um, Ninite or other things for Windows that you can do the same task. But maybe this could be a, um, a place where he, you know, you could always set up your system and then have a backup of your system just installed, just configured everything you like, have that backed up, uh, and then have the, the regular backups gone with Bacula. Um, Something that you could restore, have your apps. You yes. don't have to re-download those and then have the data there as well. Um, the other thing I know is, uh, I believe, FreeNAS or ZFS. I don't know if it's just FreeNAS, but I think you can integrate with Windows volume shadow copy type stuff. I don't. Uh, Bacula will, will does, 
Bacula does do volume shadow copies, but I've not backed up a Windows box with with Bacula in a few years. I do have one Windows box there, but mm-hmm. it hasn't been powered on in a while. Okay. Anything else you'd like uh, like to tell Connor? Let us know what you're trying and yes. come back and tell us how it went. Please do. We'd love to hear more from you. Thank you, Connor. All righty. And our last piece of feedback for today, uh, we've got an article, uh, something in here from Tyler asking about FreeNAS transmission prop permissions. Oh, that's a hard one. FreeNAS transmission permissions. There we go. Hi, guys. First off, big thanks. I've been a TechSnap listener for a while now, along with the other great JB content, and love the show. I think Dan and Wes are doing a bang-up job so far. Aw, thank you. Keep up the great work. Hey, we try. As for my question, I'm wondering if you might be able to help me out with an odd permissions error I'm encountering in FreeNAS. I'm running FreeNAS 9.10.2 with two two 2-terabyte mirrored drives set up with a single volume, which is shared via Samba. I'm trying to set up the transmission plugin slash jail so that it will download to a particular folder on my volume. I've set up the storage for the jail to point to this folder. I've created the transmission user, both account and group, on the FreeNAS, and this user account has read-write access to the downloads folder when I SSH into the FreeNAS box. So when he SSHs as that account, he can get to downloads. However, whenever I upload a torrent via the transmission web interface, it always gives a permissions error when trying to download the file. I've tried playing around with the permissions in various ways, but I just can't seem to crack this nut. And all the docs I've found online thus far haven't shown anything different from what I've done. What could I be missing here? Any thoughts, suggestions, advice would be great. Many thanks as always. Tyler. I had a look at other people that had similar problems. So it it sounds like he's able to um, upload the torrent but then he can't download it later on when he wants it. So basically, the transmission user can write there, but the user he's reading it as can't read it. So I think what you're going to have to do is go and have a look at the permissions on the directory in which this stuff is being installed and see what the permissions are for the group and for the uh, for others and see if it fits in with what you're doing. You might need to add the group that owns a directory into one of your groups, or you might want to add yourself into one of the groups that the transmission group owner is owner is in. But without seeing the permissions, um, it's I can't give you any advice, but Googling what other people did to get it to work they did a chmod 777, but I don't recommend doing that. No. I don't recommend doing that at all. You may be able to do some deeper interrogation. I'm not sure um, how comfortable you are, but like on Linux, you could use something like strace, or you could use the dtrace facilities of FreeBSD maybe to, or set up some like I notify on Linux, but whatever the KQ equivalent is, something that you can watch maybe and see what transmission is doing to get a better job of, you know, is it trying to access the file in a strange way, or is it using a different account than you expect? Something like that. Um, Alan suggests that the transmission web interface may not have write access to the directory where it actually drops the actual torrent file. So it's kind of unclear as to whether it's an upload problem or a read problem. I think it's a read problem, um, but we're going to have to find out. Uh, We haven't seen any permissions on that directory or anything. So Tyler, have a look. um, See if you can find any logs. 
get more and permissions. And then get us back, you know, g- give us some more detailed error message and we might be able to help a bit more. Yeah. I've run transmission and the web interface in particular before, and I have not run into this, but maybe I'll set it up sometime this week and take a play with it as well. Mm-hmm. And we should go back to the first post, the first feedback post. We don't have anything more to add to this one, but we have some information from the channel. Um, there is Kafka mirroring um, that you might be able to do so that you at least can have another system running what you have. And they also found uh, archive Kafka data to Amazon 3. We'll add this to the show notes. So I have a feeling that that will work for you. You've at least got some things to try. Um, it seems like it. I'll be curious to hear what you go with if you keep using it. Um, we'll find out more. Not something yep. I've ever deployed myself. Um, I, and I know a lot of people using it. I've seen it at work, but um, it depends on how you've set it up. If you, you know, some people end up backing up kind of on the out exteriors of it rather than through it. So we'll find out. All right. Well, that wraps up the feedback section today. Hit us up. You can find us on Twitter. Go over to the TechSnap subreddit or just uh, email us at our JB email addresses, which you can find on the site, jupiterbroadcasting.com. We love getting feedback from our audience. It gives us things to talk about. There's lots of new things that you guys are doing that we want to hear about. So if you emailed in today, go get us the things we suggested. If not, if you're enjoying the show, if you have questions, really anything else, you're bored and you want to talk to us, send in some feedback. And that brings us to the final segment of today's TechSnap, which is our Rockin' Roundup. Let's see. Up first, we've got AT&T and Verizon just got a free pass from the FCC to divide up the internet. What are they talking about? Well, this is a net neutrality issue. And a lot of people don't understand why net neutrality is important. And here's an example. A lot of you are getting free data for certain providers on your internet, such as, you know, you want to listen to Pandora? They're not going to charge that against your data. You want to listen to something else? you got to charge it against your data. So what are you going to do? Are you going to listen to music off Pandora or something else? Chances are you're going to use Pandora, which makes it very difficult for companies that are starting up in competition against Pandora or anyone who is already in competition with Pandora to get any traffic from Verizon or T-Mobile or AT&T or Comcast users, for example. So basically what happened, the FCC recently opened inquiries into how companies might be using free data programs to anti-competitively favor certain streaming music and video services. But a new President Trump-appointed chairman recently took over at the FCC, and according to letters just posted by the agencies, the inquiries have been dropped. Now, this might sound like good news to everyone who says, what? Why would anyone oppose free data? Well, basically, it's carving up the Internet into free and paid and you don't want that you want all of your da- data to be able to free flow li- flow freely yeah i mean it's a it's a culture issue and it's a an issue that reflects the development of 
especially as the internet becomes uh, a central resource to how we run our lives, how we get our news. Uh, we, we really need it to be just a plain old pipe. Some of the ISPs are taking it as a business venture mm -hmm. because they say to these companies, hey, listen, we'll, we'll, we won't charge our customers for your traffic if, if you give us some money, for example. I'm, I have no proof that this is happening, but I have no doubt that it is. Right. Um, why, why else would companies an ISP say, oh, no, we're not going to charge our clients for you? Um, it's, it's, it's like the, the problem is most of these companies – are also content providers. Um, Comcast produces an awful lot of content. And what happens if they don't like um, Netflix, for example? It, it's well documented what happened when, exactly. when, when Netflix and Comcast took, took up arms against each other while Comcast objected to Netflix. Netflix just objected to the way it was being treated unfairly. Yeah. But net neutrality really needs to be pushed you can't have any of this favoritism of some services over others. It's it's not fair to the users, and it's not fair to the suppliers of the data that the users are using. Yep. Yep. And it and it it really creates bad behavior and expectations for the consumers. Like, of course, yeah. Oh, great, my music is free. I don't have to pay for the data for that. And maybe if you could do it in a system that was more equitable to other content providers that that what that did create fair play. But the current system of just whoever has money gets the data. Like, that, it's just, it's untenable. No, it's no good. All right, let's keep going. These 10 cities have the worst malware infection rates in the U.S. This is a new uh, spin on the malware thing. You know, we've se I've seen some maps and some interactive diagrams about, like, where was that big hit. But this is a, kind of an overview of where it's bad right now. It's interesting. And I, I would have thought that malware was sort of... Ubiqu um, ubiquitous. It didn't really favor particular areas or anything, but it is interesting to see that Tampa and Orlando top the list, followed by uh, St. Louis, Denver, and Atlanta. Um, I've, n you know, uh, some of these places are, are getting between 500 and 300 times above national average. It wow. just doesn't make sense. Like, why is it so much higher than there? Uh, Newark, Madison, Washington, D.C., Cleveland, Cincinnati. So the 10th most infected country, so, sorry, city in the country gets malware rates at roughly twice the average of what's here. Yeah, Alan's got some good things. It would be interesting to see this broken down um, by age. It might also be interesting to see it broken down by, like, are there certain types of businesses or business sizes or other factors. You know, what are the by, conflicting I want to see it broken down by age, by ISP, and by platform. Oh, yeah. Platform would be good. Where is the malware getting... What is the malware getting into? And I'm not really sure why they, they mention all these uh, top companies that are in those cities. I'm not sure why that, that is relevant. Um. Anyway, it's interesting. It's a bit of eye candy. So if you have friends and relatives in these cities, see what you can do to help them out with uh, some sort of... Uh, make sure they're patching their crap because... Yes, they've probably got a malware, malware problem. Yeah, you don't get malware unless, unless you're uh, vulnerable. 
Or maybe if you're considering a move, these are cities to stay away from. Okay, well, in uh, maybe better news, we've got an Anonymous hacks and takes down 10,613 dark web portals. I certainly don't condone, condone anyone taking down something, but you have to admire the ethics of what he's doing. Um, anonymous hackers have breached Freedom Hosting 2, a popular dark web hosting provider, and have taken down 10,613.onion sites. Basically, it's just a huge amount of what they've done. Now, it, it sounds very similar to another post I saw recently, and the motivation was child pornography. All of these sites hosted child pornography. Basically, he discovered onion URLs hosting botnets, fraud sites, sites peddling hack data, um, portals, and other weird stuff, and child, child abuse. Now, I'm not really worried about some of this stuff, but child pornography, he's fine. Take it down. Yeah, exactly. The fraud, all of that stuff, get rid of it. Seems like it. Um, the fetish sites, nah. If no one's getting hurt, leave it alone. Now, the FBI d dismantled free, first freedom hosting for the same reasons. Um, they were hacked and DDoSed by Anonymous in 2011 as part of Operation Darknet for the same reasons of hosting child pornography portals. If you're going to do stuff like this, at least you're picking the right targets. Yeah, may not be legal, legal may not even be ethical necessarily, but it's uh, it seems like it comes down on the right side, especially if those are the things that you're removing from the net. Yep. All right. Well, we don't want to alarm you. We really don't. That's not our job. But PostScript makes your printer an attack vector. Sorry to say it, but you're an there's an attack vector. Watch out for your printer. Now... Um, I want to make sure that I'm getting these ones in the right order. Register just one second, please. Doo, 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 doo. The roundup is there too much today. Yep. I'm having trouble following. So, basically, PostScript makes your printer an attack ve vector. Basically, <clears throat> if your printer runs Postgres, uh, sorry, PostScript makes sure it's off the internet. Why you would have your printer accessible from the internet, I really don't know. I guess there's those um, I think, cloud printer things where you can tie it up with Google and print from your phone and then it shows up yeah, at your house or whatever. That sounds slightly more secure than having it on the internet. Yes. Like, I've got a public IP allocated it yeah. just for my yeah, printer. Uh, yeah. And don't make it available through a port on the internet on your on your firewall either. Just don't do that. Nope. So the bug is also exploitable on Linux, BSD, and Mac OS because it's exploitable via the popular uh, CAPS interface, the common Unix printing system. So basically, get your printers off the net. They shouldn't be anywhere near it. Yep. Leads in well to the next post. I will say PostScript is an interesting language. It's a, it's a stack-based language, so it's kind of like fourth in that respect. Yeah. Um, but I can definitely see how having this Turing-complete language that you use to describe prints, I mean... Yeah. It's not any better than PDF, I suppose. But still, there's definitely danger there. I've never put, I've never programmed with it at all. 
Thankfully, I haven't either. Um, I've had I output to PostScript, but I've never had to hand roll anything. Oh. I am now regretting turning on the additional devices. It's eighty-two point six in here. Nice. You just had next. to impress us. Yes. Next. next, we're moving on. A hacker just pwned over one hundred and fifty thousand printers. Left exposed online. What did you just say, Dan? And they didn't listen to you. I wonder if it was PostScript. It was PostScript. Multiple printer brands were affected. Things such as Afico, Brother, Canon, Epson, HP, Lexmark, Konica, Minolta, Oki, and Samsung. Basically, the script also includes an exploit that uses a remote code execution vulnerability to target Dell Xeon printers. This allowed me to inject PostScript and invoke rogue jobs. So... The fact that he could invoke rogue, rogue jobs remotely reminds me of what ham radio operators used to do years ago, and perhaps they still do. But at that time, ham radio operators used to have a teletype attached. And so you could, over the air, connect up to their teletype and send a whole bunch of line feeds. And basically, you come in in the morning and all your um, teletype paper is on the floor. Yikes. Not so nasty, but... Annoying. Yes, exactly. Oh, that's fun. Uh, watch out. Watch out. All right. Up next, we've got Darknet Markets moving to adopt bug bounty programs. I guess they're working so well for other markets that, hey, why not? Yes. Uh, for those not familiar with what the Darknet is, uh, the, the reason it's called Dark is because basically you can't find it by searching with your regular search engines. It, it, they basically keep themselves very quiet. It, it's word of mouth, and you only get there if you know where to go and someone tells you or you find it referenced in other nefarious locations. And frequently you may need to use other protocols like Tor or other things to get there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the Darknet uh, likes its security. Handsome Marketplace, a large anonymous black market which brought in an estimated $3 million in business last year, launched a bug bounty program this week with rewards ranging upwards of $10,000 for people who find critical vulnerabilities. Like other darknet markets, Hansa sells a variety of products, including hacked account credentials and illicit drugs. There are approximately 15,000 unique product listings on the site. Now, I seem to recall other darknet places getting hacked and getting taken offline. So I can see why it's in their own best interests in order to set out a bug bounty. Because if you're bringing in three million, you know, paying ten or twenty thousand every once in a while to find bugs in your infrastructure, it's pretty sounds reasonable. Sounds like a good idea. It's funny how like they may not be legal, but they end up kind of being very much like any other organization where. Right? There's a lot of like regular day-to-day -day operational concerns, and this is one of them. Yep. I agree. It's very wise. Very wise. Yeah, exactly. Okay. And then, uh, okay. Here, up next, we've got uh, some highlights from Fostum. So Fostum just got over. Uh, it was this last weekend, I believe, and they've already got a ton of the video recordings up. Yep. A Alan was there if he's not already there. I'm not sure if he's home yet, but I'm sure he'll pipe in if he is. Um so basically, all, 
the, the talks from FOSDEM have uh, been put online, and this first page is not the list of talks. This first page is just the list of rooms. You click in a room, and then you get the list of, uh, of films from that room. So there's an incredible amount of, of video recordings here to go through. They've got both and, MP4s and WebMs, so you know, yep. however freedom-respecting you'd like to be. And Alan just got home today. So, yeah, I would start having a look at this because uh, FOSDEM has a lot of incredible talks. Um, I've never been. I know many people that have. And I'm told it's a great conference. Yeah, I just finished watching a bunch of the talks from linuxconf.au, which ended recently. Uh, and then I went over to the FOSDEM page and started looking at the schedule. And wow, the schedule page is hard to navigate just because there's so much going on. So I already picked out a few key things. I'll probably go back and look more tonight. Uh, it's worth checking out. Okay. Next. Next. Oh, right. Hackers have hit the DC police closed circuit camera network. City officials disclose. Now, this is in the same vein of if it's publicly accessible, why is it publicly accessible? I see no reason for these cameras to be on the internet. And if even if they are, you shouldn't be able to connect to them or take them offline. But apparently ransomware get in and left the police cameras vulnerable. Perhaps, uh, maybe they came in through the police uh, infrastructure. But seriously, improve this. This, is, this should, should not be happening. But anyway, the interesting thing is that this was eight days before President Trump's inauguration. Now, the classic movie script in me says, this is what you would do. If you're planning some event to occur during the inauguration, is you would disable all the cameras, move everything in place while the cameras are not operational, and then put the cameras back online again. And then when the event is about to occur, take the cameras offline again. That's how I'd write the yeah, script. Yeah, right. I would do that too. Yikes. Oh, yeah. So... City officials said ransomware left police cameras unable to record between January 12th and January 15th. Uh, the cyber attack affected 123 of 187 network video recorders. Well, yeah, they did a pretty that's, good job. That's huge. Yeah, that's a lot of them. And it does seem like, yeah, sure, maybe you want to be able to connect to the system, but that's, again, where you have a VPN or other, some sort of access where it's just, it's not totally internet accessible. When will we yeah. learn? Slowly. Yeah. Slowly but surely. Slowly but surely. All right. Next, uh, we've got, let's see here. We've got some iOS cracking tools allegedly stolen from Celebrate, and they got dumped online by hackers. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Well, probably re people will probably remember this when Apple refused to help the FBI break into a phone. Their, uh, their position was anything we create will be stolen uh, or once you break into one phone, you break into all phones. You can't create a tool just to break into a single phone. It's going to be, it, it's not going to be secure. So they refused to help. I was, I was so pretty impressed FB with that. I have a lot of respect for a company that's willing to stand up on behalf of its um, customers and say, no, we're not going to help you break into this. It takes a lot of guts. It sure does. So, what happened? FBI went to someone else. They wrote it. 
And like we feared, like everybody that's technical and has any sense about them said, look, these tools are going to be stolen. And what happened? The tools got stolen. Hopefully now the phones are no longer vulnerable to this particular attack vector. But uh, this is not good. This is not good. This means that anyone, including criminals or, or police, can break into your phone. Yep, I'm sure police departments are uh, uh, are certainly paying attention to that. Yikes. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Well, in uh, another dangerous thing that you should be aware of, Microsoft's DRM, so-called, can expose Windows on Tor and their users' IP address. Yikes. Yes, that's always a concern. Any kind of information linkage when you're trying to use Tor, and Windows can make that doubly so. Tell us more. Yep. Well. Basically, what happens is there's some DRM software which has to fetch its license key from a server. And if it's not signed properly, Windows raises a dialog to warn you. However, this warning does not appear if the DRM license has been signed correctly and the digital signature object, object encryption object, content encryption object, and extended content encryption object contain the appropriate cryptographic signing performed by an authorized Microsoft licensed server profile. Wow. That's a horrible sentence. It's horrible. So what happens is these signed uh, WMV files do not present any alert to a user before opening that they can be used to quite effectively decloak users of the popular privacy tool, Tor Browser, with very little warning. So in effect, you start them up, it calls home, and then bang. So theoretically, you could send someone one of these files, have it open up, and it calls home, and bang, they know who, they know who, they know the IP address of whoever opened it up. We, we covered this so, sort of when we did the talk last week about Twitter security, where you, you don't click on any links provided to you via Twitter if you're trying to maintain a secret identity. You really don't. So click on this media file. Try this. Yes. Yes. I think it also highlights uh, things we're talking about where Really be aware of everything that you're running. Don't run on your traditional OS stack. Don't run on your traditional IP address. Don't run, you know, it's, it's all of these things that are just waiting there. And certainly don't run uh, WMV files or any other proprietary formats that aren't from people you trust or that you don't know the source of or that you haven't confirmed on a non-secure computer or on another location aren't going to actively communicate. Good luck with that. Yep. Someone mentioned, why would you use Tor with a proprietary OS? Surely that defeats the whole point of trying to be, be anonymous. Well, sometimes you got to use what you have. Yeah. Not everyone has a choice. And they may not, their threat vector may not be the NSA or Microsoft or any of those agents. They may really be trying to hide from other people or just privacy conscious or a number of other reasons. So that may, may not be their concern. Things like this are. All right. Well, that brings us to the final roundup story for the day. Oh, this is an interesting one. Have you have an OpenBSD web server? Better patch it. There are DOS-able d- bugs that have just been fixed. Yep. OpenBSD and two of its SSL libraries need patches against a pair of denial-of-service bugs that can crash web-facing servers. Fortunately, this should be easy um, to fix, I think. Um, 
the memory exhaustion bug is is dealt with in bug fixes outlined here for version 6 or here for version 5.9. And the SSL renegotiation bug is in the Libra SSL implementation used by OpenBSA. The fixes and patches in the SSL and TSL TLS libraries. So sysadmins can block these client-initiated renegotiations. So it's a problem, but it's been fixed. So make sure you patch your shit. You'll be fine. Yep. Yep. And as always, the OpenBSD guys are totally on top of it. They've got good disclosures about it. They've fixed it right away. Got patches ready for you. Uh, I will also, that kind of reminds me, Joel uh, from the Libre SSL topic had a linux.conf.au talk uh, talking about redesigning the TLS API, which I thought was very enjoyable. So I will add that to the show notes. I really appreciate okay. what the liberal Libre SSL people are doing and trying to make it a better world for everyone who yes. uses it. Yes, it's good work, without doubt. All right, well, that's the end of the show today. Anything you'd like to tell the viewers before we head out, Dan? Mm, nope. Thank you very much for listening. See you next week. That finishes up this week's episode of TechSnap. This has been episode 305, live-streamed on February 7th, 2017. If you'd like to see more of our show, hit the archives, go check out other fine Jupiter Broadcasting programs, head over to jupiterbroadcasting.com. You can also check out the calendar there to find out when this program and anything else is live. If you'd like to give us some feedback or just hear more from Dan or myself, you can find me at, at West Payne on Twitter, and Dan is at TechSnap underscore Dan. Thank you, and see you next week. Bye.